Book nine, part one of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. The Memoirs of Chateaubriand, volume four by François René de Chateaubriand. Translated by Alexander Teixeira de Matos. Book nine, part one. It was in London, in 1822, that I wrote, without intermission, the longest part of these memoirs, including my travels in America, my return to France, my marriage, my passing through Paris, my emigration to Germany with my brother, my residence and misfortunes in England between 1793 and 1800. There is found the description of old England, and, as I retraced all this at the time of my embassy, 1822, the changes that had come over the manners and persons of the time between 1793 and the end of the century struck me. I was naturally led to compare what I saw in 1822 with what I had seen during the seven years of my exile across the Channel. In this way were told, by anticipation, things which I should now have to place under the proper date of my diplomatic mission. I spoke to you of my emotion, of the feelings recalled to me by the sight of those spots dear to my memory. But perhaps you have not read that part of my book. You have done well. It is enough that I should now tell you of the place in which the gaps that will be found in the present story of my embassy in London are filled up. You see me, therefore, writing in 1839, among the dead of 1822, and the dead that went before in 1793. In London, in the month of April 1822, I was within fifty leagues of Lady Sutton. I strolled in Kensington Gardens with my recent impressions and the early past of my young years, a confusion of times which produces in me a confusion of memories. Life which burns out mingles, like the fire of Corinth, the molten brass of the statues of the muses and love, of the tripods and the tombs. The parliamentary holidays were still proceeding when I alighted at my house in Portland Place. The Under-Secretary of State, Mr. Planter, invited me, on behalf of the Marquess of Londonderry, to go to dine at North Cray, the noble lord's country place. This villa, with a large tree before the windows on the garden side, looked out over some meadows. A little underwood growing on hillocks distinguished this site from the ordinary English sites. Lady Londonderry was much in vogue in her quality as a marchioness and as wife of the Prime Minister. My dispatch of the 12th of April, number 4, relates my first interview with Lord Londonderry. It touches on the affairs with which I had to occupy myself. London, 12th April, 1822. Monsieur le Vicomte, I went two days ago, on Wednesday the 10th instant, to North Cray. I shall now have the honour of giving you an account of my conversation with the Marquis of Londonderry. It lasted for an hour and a half before dinner, and we resumed it later, but less at our ease, because we were no longer alone. Lord Londonderry first asked for news of the King's health, with a persistency which manifestly revealed a political interest. When I had reassured him on this point, he passed to the Ministry. It is consolidating itself, he said. I replied, it has never been shaken, and, as it belongs to one opinion, it will remain the master so long as that opinion prevails in the chambers. This brought us to speak of the elections. He seemed struck by what I said of the advantage of a summer session to restore order in the financial year. He had not till then well understood the state of the question. The war between Russia and Turkey next became the subject of conversation. Lord Londonderry, when speaking of soldiers and armies, appeared to me to be of the opinion of our late ministry, as to the danger there might be for us in getting together large bodies of troops, 
I opposed this idea. I maintained that there was nothing to be feared in leading the French soldier into battle, that he would never be unfaithful in the sight of the enemy's flag, that our army has lately been increased, that it could be trebled to-morrow if that were necessary, without the smallest inconvenience, that, in truth, a few non-commissioned officers might shout, Long live the Charter! in a garrison, but that our grenadiers would always shout, Long live the King! on the battlefield. I do not know whether these greater politics made Lord Londonderry forget the Treaty of the Negroes. He did not say a word about it to me. Changing the subject, he spoke of the message in which the President of the United States invites Congress to recognize the independence of the Spanish colonies. Commercial interests, I said to him, may derive some advantage from it, but I doubt whether political interests will find the same profit in it. There are already enough political ideas in the world. To increase the mass of those ideas is to compromise more and more the fate of the monarchies in Europe. Lord Londonderry abounded in my sense and spoke these remarkable words to me. As for us, the English, we are not at all disposed to recognize those revolutionary governments. Was he sincere? I have had Monsieur Le Vicomte to report to you word for word an important conversation. However, we must not hide from ourselves the fact that England will sooner or later recognize the independence of the Spanish colonies. Public opinion and the impulse of her trade will drive her to it. She has already, during the last three years, gone to considerable expense to establish secret relations with the revolted provinces north and south of the Isthmus of Panama. Upon the whole, Monsieur Le Vicomte, I have found in the Marquis of Londonderry a man of sense, of perhaps somewhat doubtful frankness, a man still steeped in the old ministerial system, a man accustomed to a submissive diplomacy, and surprised, without being offended, at language more worthy of France, a man, in short, who could not refrain from a sort of astonishment while talking with one of those royalists who, since seven years, have been represented to him as madmen or imbeciles. I have the honour, etc. With these general affairs were mingled, as in all embassies, private transactions. I had to occupy myself with the petitions of Monsieur le Duc de Fitzjames, with the lawsuit of the ship Eliza Anne, with the depredations of the Jersey fishermen on the Granville oyster-banks, etc., etc., I regretted to be obliged to set aside a little pigeonhole in my brain for the papers of the claimants. When one ransacks one's memory, it is hard to come across Messieurs Ousquin, Coppinger, de Liège, and Pifre. But in a few years, shall we be better known than those gentlemen? A certain Monsieur Bonnet, having died in America, all the Bonnets in France wrote to me to claim his succession. Those tormentors write to me still. Yet it ought to be time to leave me in peace. It is all very well for me to reply that, the little accident of the fall of the throne having occurred, I no longer occupy myself with this world. They hold out, and want their inheritance at all costs. As to the East, it was in contemplation to recall the different ambassadors from Constantinople. I foresaw that England would not follow the movement of the Continental Alliance, and I informed Monsieur de Montmorency of this. The rupture which had been feared between Russia and the port did not happen. Alexander's moderation delayed the event. In this connection, I made a great expenditure of going and coming, of sagacity and argument. I wrote a multitude of dispatches, which have gone to must in our archives, with the reports of events that never occurred. I at least have this advantage over my colleagues, that I attach no importance to my labours. I saw them without a care, swallowed up in oblivion with all the lost ideas of mankind. Parliament resumed its sittings on the 17th of April. The King returned on the 18th, and I was presented to him on the 19th. I gave an account of this presentation in my dispatch of the 19th, 
It ended thus. H.B.M., thanks to his close and varied conversation, did not give me an opening to tell him something with which the king had specially charged me. But the favourable and early occasion of a new audience is about to present itself. This something with which the king had specially charged me related to Monsieur le Duc de Caz. Later I executed my orders. I told George IV that Louis the Eighteenth was distressed at the coldness with which the ambassador of his most Christian majesty had been received. George IV replied, Listen, Monsieur de Chateaubriand, I will confess to you. Monsieur de Caz's mission was not to my liking. It was acting a little cavalierly towards me. My friendship for the King of France alone made me put up with a favourite who had no other merit than his master's attachment. Louis XVIII reckoned greatly on my goodwill, and he was right, but I could not carry indulgence so far as to treat Monsieur de Caz with a distinction at which England would have taken offence. However, tell your king that I am touched by what he ordered you to represent to me, and that I shall always be happy to prove my real attachment for him. Emboldened by these words, I laid before George IV all that came to my mind in favour of Monsieur de Caz. He answered, half in English, half in French, Amevé, you are a true gentleman. When I returned to Paris, I gave Louis XVIII an account of this conversation. He seemed grateful to me. George IV had spoken to me like a well-bred but easy-going prince. He was free from bitterness because he thought of other things. Nevertheless, it did not do to trifle with him beyond moderation. One of his table-fellows had wagered that he would ask George IV to ring the bell, and that George IV would obey. George IV did in fact ring the bell, and said to the gentleman in waiting, Show this gentleman the door. The idea of restoring strength and brilliancy to our arms continued to dominate me. I wrote to M. de Montmorency on the 13th of April, I have had an idea, Monsieur le Vicomte, which I submit to your judgment. Would you think it amiss that, in the form of a conversation with Prince Esterhazy, I should give him to understand that, if Austria required to withdraw a part of her troops, we could replace them in Piedmont? A few rumours spread as to an intended muster of our troops in Dauphiné would give me a favourable pretext. I proposed to the former ministry, to garrison Savoy, at the time of the revolt in June 1821. He rejected that measure, and I think that, in so doing, he made a capital mistake. I persist in thinking that the presence of some French troops in Italy would produce a great effect on public opinion, and that the King's government would derive much glory from it. Proofs superabound of the noble character of our diplomacy during the Restoration. What does this matter to parties? Have I not read this very morning, in a newspaper of the left, that the alliance forced us to act as its policemen, and to make war on Spain, when the Congress de Véron is there? when diplomatic documents show in an irrefutable manner that all Europe, with the exception of Russia, objected to the war, that not only did it object to it, but that England openly opposed it, and that Austria secretly thwarted us by most ignoble measures. This will not prevent them from lying afresh to-morrow. They will not even take the trouble to examine the question, to read that of which they speak knowingly without having read it. Every lie repeated becomes a truth, one cannot have too great a contempt for human opinions. Lord John Russell, on the 25th of April, introduced a motion in the House of Commons on the state of the national representation in Parliament. Mr. Canning opposed it. The latter, in his turn, introduced a bill to repeal a portion of the Act, depriving Catholic peers of their right of sitting and voting in the House. 
I was present at these sittings on the woolsack, where the speaker had made me sit. Mr. Canning was present, in 1822, at the sitting of the House of Lords, which rejected his bill. He was hurt at a phrase of the old Chancellor's. The latter, speaking of the author of the bill, exclaimed scornfully, They say he is leaving for India. Ah, let him go, this fine gentleman, let him go, and a good journey to him. Mr. Canning said to me as we went out, I'll catch him yet. Lord Holland spoke very well, without, however, recalling Mr. Fox. He used to spin round, so that he often presented his back to the house and addressed his remarks to the walls. The peers cried, Hear, hear! No one was offended by this eccentricity. In England, everyone expresses himself as he can. Petty pleading is unknown. There is no resemblance in the voice or in the delivery of the speakers. The members listen patiently. They are not offended when the speaker has no facility. Let him splutter, let him hem and haw, let him seek his words. They find that he has made a fine speech, if he has uttered a few phrases of good sense. This variety of men who have remained what nature made them ends by being agreeable. It breaks the monotony. It is true that there are only a small number of lords and members of the House of Commons who get up to speak. We, always placed upon a stage, hold forth and gesticulate like a solemn puppet-show. It was a useful study to me to pass from the secret and silent monarchy of Berlin to the public and noisy monarchy of London. One could derive some instruction from the contrast between two nations at the two ends of the ladder. The arrival of the King, the reopening of Parliament, the commencement of the season, blended duty, business and pleasure. One could meet the ministers only at court, at balls or in Parliament. To celebrate His Majesty's birthday, I dined with Lord Londonderry. I dined on the Lord Mayor's Gallery, which went up to Richmond. I prefer the miniature Bucentor in the Arsenal at Venice, which no longer bears more than the memory of the Doges and a Virgilian name. In the old days, as an emigrant, lean and half-naked, I had amused myself, without being Scipio, by throwing stones into the water along that bank now hugged by the Lord Mayor's plump and well-lined barge. I also dined in the east end of the town with Mr. Rothschild of London, of the younger branch of Solomon. Where did I not dine? The roast beef equalled that of the Tower of London in stateliness. The fish were so long that one could not see their tails. Ladies whom I met there and nowhere else sang like Abigail. I quaffed okay not far from the place which had seen me toss off water by the pitcherful and almost die of hunger. Reclining against the silk squab back of my well-padded carriage, I saw that same Westminster where I had spent a night locked in the abbey and around which I had strolled covered with mud, with Hangon and Fontaine. My house, the rent of which cost me twelve hundred pounds a year, was opposite the garret inhabited by my cousin de la Boetardet, what time, in a red robe, he used to play the guitar on a borrowed truckle bed, to which I had offered shelter beside my own. There was no longer a question of those emigrant hops at which we used to dance to the tune of the violin of a councillor to the Breton Parliament. It was Almax, conducted by Colinet, that provided my delight a public ball under the patronage of the great ladies of the West End. There the old and the young dandies met. Among the old shone the victor of Waterloo, who aired his glory like a snare for women stretched across the quadrilles. At the head of the young stood out Lord Clown William, said to be the son of the Duke of Richmond. He did wonderful things. He galloped out to Richmond and returned to Almax after twice falling from his horse. He had a certain manner of utterance after the fashion of Alcibiades, which was thought enchanting. The fashions in words, 
the affectations of language and pronunciation changing as they do in almost every parliamentary session in high society in london an honest man is wonderstruck at no longer knowing english which he believed himself to know perfectly six months before in eighteen twenty two the duty of the man of fashion was at the first glance to present an unhappy and ailing figure he was expected to have something neglected about his person long nails beard worn neither full nor shaved but seeming to have sprouted at a given moment by surprise through forgetfulness and the preoccupations of despair a waving lock of hair a profound sublime wandering and fatal glance lips contracted in scorn of the human race a heart bored byronian drowned in the disgust and mystery of existence to-day it is no longer so the dandy must have a conquering thoughtless insolent air he must attend to his dress wear moustachios or a beard cut round like queen elizabeth's ruff or the radiant disc of the sun he reveals the lofty independence of his character by keeping his hat on his head by lolling on the sofa stretching out his boots before the noses of the ladies seated in admiration on chairs before him he rides with a cane which he carries like a wax taper indifferent to the horse which chances to be between his legs his health must be perfect and his soul always at the height of five or six felicities a few radical dandies those most advanced towards the future possess a pipe but no doubt all these things are changed in the very time which i am taking to describe them they say that the dandy of the present moment must no longer know if he exists if the world is there if there are women and if you ought to salute his neighbours is it not curious to find the original of the dandy under henry the third those pretty minions says the author of the ile des hermaphrodites wore their hair longish curled and curled again showing above their little velvet caps like the women and their shirt ruffs of linen all around starch and half a foot wide in such fashion that to see their heads above their cuffs it seemed as though it was the head of st john in a dish they leave to go to henry the third's chamber swinging their body their heads and their legs so that i thought at every turn that they must needs fall at full length they found that manner of walking finer than any other all the english are mad by nature or by fashion lord clanwilliam passed quickly i met him again at verona he became british minister in berlin after me for a moment we followed the same road although we did not walk with the same step nothing in london succeeded like insolence as witness d'orsay the brother of the duchesse de guiche he had taken to galloping in hyde park leaping turnpike gates gambling treating the dandies without ceremony he had an unequal success and to crown the whole he ended by carrying off an entire family father mother and children the ladies most in fashion pleased me little there was one however who was charming lady gridier she resembled a frenchwoman in her tone and manners lady jersey still maintained her position as a beauty i met the opposition at her house lady cunningham belonged to the opposition and the king himself kept a secret liking for his old friends among the patronesses of almax one marked the russian ambassadress the countess de leven had had some rather ridiculous affairs with madame d'osmond and george the fourth as she was audacious and was considered to be in favour at court she had become extremely fashionable she was thought to have wit because her husband was supposed to have none which was not true monsieur de leven was much superior to madame madame de leven with sharp and unprepossessing features is a commonplace wearisome arid woman who has only one style of conversation vulgar politics for the rest she knows nothing and she hides the dearth of her ideas under the abundance of her words 
When she finds herself with people of merit, her sterility is silent. She invests her nullity with a superior air of boredom, as though she had the right to be bored, having fallen through the effect of time, and being unable to keep from meddling with something. The dowager of the Congress has come from Verona to give in Paris, with the permission of the magistrates of St. Petersburg, a representation of the diplomatic puerilities of former days. She keeps up private correspondences, and has shown herself a specialist in unhappy marriages. Our novices have rushed to her rooms to learn to know the fine world and the art of secrets. They entrust her with theirs, which, spread aboard by Madame de Leven, change into underhand tittle-tattle. The ministers, and those who aspire to become so, are quite proud to be protected by a lady who has had the honour to see Monsieur de Metternich at the hours in which the great man, to refresh himself after the weight of business, amused himself by unravelling silk. Ridicule awaited Madame de Leven in Paris. A serious doctrinaire has fallen at Omphal's feet. Love, t'was thou lost, Troy. The day was thus distributed in London. At six o'clock in the morning one hastened to a party of pleasure, consisting of a breakfast in the country. One returned to lunch in London. One changed one's dress to walk in Bond Street or Hyde Park. One dressed again to dine at half-past seven. One dressed again for the opera. At midnight one dressed once more for an evening party or rout. What a life of enchantment! I should a hundred times have preferred the galleys. The supreme height of fashion was to be unable to make one's way into the small rooms of a private ball, to remain on the staircase blocked by the crowd, and to find oneself nose to nose with the Duke of Somerset, a state of beatitude to which I once attained. The English of the new breed are infinitely more frivolous than we. Their heads are turned for a show. If the Paris executioner were to go to London, all England would run after him. Did not Marshal so enrapture the ladies, like Blucher, whose moustachios they kissed? Our Marshal, who is not Antipater, nor Antigonus, nor Seleucus, nor Antiochus, nor Ptolemy, nor any of the captain kings of Alexander, is a distinguished soldier, who pillaged Spain while getting beaten, and with whom Capuchins redeemed their lives with pictures. But it is true that in March 1814, he published a furious proclamation against Bonaparte, whom he received in triumph a few days later. He has since done his Easter duty at St. Thomas d'Aquin, and they show his old boots in London for a shilling. All reputations are quickly made on the banks of the Thames, and as quickly lost. In 1822 I found that great city immersed in the recollection of Bonaparte. The people had passed from the vilification of Nick to a stupid enthusiasm. Memoirs of Bonaparte swarmed, his bust adorned every chimney-piece, his engraving shone in the windows of all the picture-dealers. His colossal statue by Canova decorated the Duke of Wellington's staircase. Could they not have consecrated another sanctuary to Mars enchained? This deification seems rather the work of the vanity of a door-porter than of the honour of a warrior. General, you did not defeat Napoleon at Waterloo. You only forced the last link of a destiny already shattered. After my official presentation to George IV, I saw him several times. The recognition of the Spanish colonies by England was pretty well decided upon. At least it seemed as though the ships of those independent states were to be received under their own flag in the ports of the British Empire. My dispatch of the 7th of May reports a conversation which I had had with Lord Londonderry and the ideas of that minister. This dispatch, important for the affairs of that time, would be almost without interest for the reader of to-day. 
Two things had to be distinguished in the position of the Spanish colonies with regard to England and France, commercial interests and political interests. I entered into the details of those interests. The more I see of the Marquess of Londonderry, I wrote to Monsieur de Montmorency, the subtler I find him. He is a man full of resource, who never says what he means. One would sometimes be tempted to think him a simple, easy man. In his voice, his laugh, his look, he has something of Monsieur Pozzo di Borgo. He does not exactly inspire one with confidence. The dispatch concludes thus. If Europe is obliged to recognise the de facto governments in America, its whole policy must tend to bring monarchies to life in the new world, instead of these revolutionary republics, which will send us their principles together with the products of their soil. In reading this dispatch, Monsieur le Vicomte, you will doubtless, like myself, experience a movement of satisfaction. It is already a great step forward in politics to have forced England to wish to associate herself with us in interests on which she would not have deigned to consult us six months ago. I congratulate myself as a good Frenchman on all that tends to put back our country in the high rank which she should occupy among foreign nations. This letter was the basis of all my ideas, and of all the negotiations on colonial affairs with which I occupied myself during the Spanish War, almost a year before that war broke out. On the 17th of May, I went to Covent Garden, in the Duke of York's box. The King appeared. This sovereign, once detested, was greeted with acclamations such as he would not, in other days, have received from the monks, the inhabitants of that former convent. On the 26th, the Duke of York came to dinner at the embassy. George IV was greatly tempted to do me the same honour, but he feared the diplomatic jealousies of my colleagues. The Vicomte de Montmorency refused to enter into negotiations on the Spanish colonies with the cabinet of St. James. On the 19th of May, I heard of the almost sudden death of Monsieur le Duc de Richelieu. That honest man had patiently borne his first retirement from office, but when business came to be taken from him for too long a time, he failed, because he had not a double life to replace that which he had lost. The great name of Richelieu has been handed down to our time only by women. The revolutions continued in America. I wrote to Monsieur de Montmorency, number 26. London, 28th May, 1822. Peru has just adopted a monarchical constitution. European policy should employ every care to obtain a similar result in the case of the colonies which declare themselves independent. The United States are singularly afraid of the establishment of an empire in Mexico. If ever the whole of the new world is republican, the monarchies of the old world will perish. There was much spoken of the distress of the Irish peasants, and society danced in order to console them. A great full-dress ball at the opera occupied sensitive souls. The king, meeting me in a corridor, asked me what I was doing there, and, taking me by the arm, he led me to his box. The English pit, in my days of exile, was noisy and coarse. Sailors drank ale in the pit, ate oranges, apostrophized the boxes. I found myself one evening next to a sailor who had entered the theatre drunk. He asked me where he was. I told him, at Covent Garden. Pretty garden, indeed, he exclaimed, seized, like Homer's gods, with inextinguishable laughter. Invited lately to an evening party at Lord Lansdowne's, I was presented by His Majesty to a severe-looking lady, seventy-three years old. She was dressed in crepe, wore a black veil, like a diadem, on her white hair, and resembled a queen who had abdicated her throne. 
she greeted me in a solemn voice with three mangled sentences from the genie du christianisme then she said to me with no less solemnity i am mrs siddons if she had said to me i am lady macbeth i should have believed her i had seen her formerly on the stage in all the strength of her talent one has but to live to find again those wrecks of one century cast by the billows of time upon the shore of another century my french visitors in london were monsieur le duc and madame la duchesse de guiche of whom i will talk to you at prague monsieur le marquis de custine whom i had seen as a child at fervac and madame la vicomtesse de noailles as agreeable witty and gracious as though she were still wandering at fourteen years of age in the beautiful gardens of merville people were weary of pleasure the ambassadors were longing to go on leave prince esterhazy was preparing to set out for vienna he hoped to be summoned to the congress for already they were speaking of a congress Monsieur rothschild was returning to france after concluding with his brother the russian loan of twenty-three million roubles the duke of bedford had fought a duel with the huge duke of buckingham at the bottom of a pit in hyde park an insulting song against the king of france sent over from paris and printed in the london papers amused the radical english mob which laughed without knowing at what i left on the sixth of june for royal lodge where the king had gone he had invited me to dine and sleep i saw george the fourth again on the twelfth thirteenth and fourteenth at his majesty's levee drawing-room and ball on the twenty-fourth i gave a fete to the prince and princess of denmark the duke of york had invited himself to it in earlier times the kindness with which the marchioness cunningham treated me would have been an important thing she told me that the idea of his britannic majesty's visit to the continent was not quite abandoned i religiously kept this great secret locked in my bosom what important dispatches would have been written on this word of a favourite in the time of mesdames de verneuil de maintenon des ursins de pompadour for the rest i should have heated myself unduly to obtain any information out of the court in london in vain do you speak they do not listen to you lord londonderry especially was impassive he embarrassed you at once by his sincerity as a minister and his reserve as a man he explained his policy frankly with the iciest air and kept a profound silence as to facts he wore an air of indifference to what he said even as to what he did not say one could not tell what one was to believe of what he showed or concealed he would not have budged if you had caught him in the ear with a sausage as saint simon says lord londonderry had a sort of irish eloquence which often aroused the laughter of the house of lords and the gaiety of the public his blunders were celebrated but he also sometimes attained flashes of eloquence which carried away the crowd as for instance his words relating to the battle of waterloo which i have recalled lord harrowby was president of the council he spoke correctly lucidly and as one acquainted with the facts it would be considered unbecoming in london for a president of the ministers to express himself prolixly or rhetorically he was moreover a perfect gentleman for manner one day at the paquis at geneva an englishman was announced lord harrowby entered i recognized him only with difficulty he had lost his old king mine was exiled it was the last time that the england of my time of grandeur appeared before me i have mentioned sir robert peel and lord westmoreland in the congress de Véron. 
i do not know if lord bathurst was descended from or related to that earl bathurst of whom stern wrote this nobleman is a prodigy for at eighty-five he has all the wit and promptness of a man of thirty a disposition to be pleased and a power to please others beyond whatever i knew lord bathurst the minister of whom i am telling you was well informed and well bred he kept up the tradition of the old french manners of good company he had three or four daughters who ran or rather who flew like sea-swallows along the waves white tall and slender what has become of them did they fall into the tiber with the young englishwoman of their name lord liverpool was not like lord londonderry the principal minister but he was the most influential and the most respected minister he enjoyed that reputation of a religious man and a good man which does so much for him who possesses it one comes to such a man with the confidence which one has for a father no action seems good if it is not approved by that godly person invested with an authority far superior to that of talent lord liverpool was the son of charles jenkinson baron hawkesbury earl of liverpool the favourite of lord bute almost all the english statesmen have begun with the literary career with pieces of poetry more or less good or with articles generally excellent inserted in the reviews a portrait remains of this first earl of liverpool when he was private secretary to lord bute his family is greatly distressed by it this vanity puerile at all times is doubtless much more so to-day but we must not forget that our most ardent revolutionaries took their hatred of society from natural disgraces or social inferiorities it is possible that lord liverpool who was inclined towards reforms and to whom mr canning owed his last ministry was influenced despite the rigour of his religious principles by some dislike of recollections at the time when i knew lord liverpool he had almost reached a puritan illumination habitually he lived alone with an old sister some miles out of london he spoke little his countenance was melancholy he often bent an ear and seemed to be listening to something sad one would have said that he was hearing his ears fall like the drops of a winter's rain upon the pavement for the rest he had no passions and he lived according to god mr croker secretary to the admiralty famous as a speaker and as a writer belonged like mr canning to the school of mr pitt but he was more sophisticated than the latter he occupied at whitehall one of those gloomy apartments from which charles i had passed through a window to walk on the same level to the scaffold one is astonished in london on entering the habitations where sit the directors of those establishments whose weight makes itself felt to the ends of the earth a few men in black frock-coats sitting at a bare table that is all you see yet those are the directors of the british navy or the members of that company of merchants the successors of the mogul emperors who number two hundred millions of subjects in india mr croker came to visit me two years ago at the infirmerie de marie therese he pointed out to me the similarity of our opinions and of our destinies events separate us from the world politics makes solitaries even as religion makes anchorites when man dwells in the desert he finds within himself some distant image of the infinite being who living alone in immensity sees the revolutions of the worlds accomplish themselves in the course of the months of june and july the affairs of spain began seriously to occupy the cabinet of london 
Lord Londonderry and the majority of the ambassadors displayed a ludicrous anxiety, and almost dread in talking of these affairs. The ministry feared lest, in case of a rupture, we should get the better of the Spaniards. The ministers of the other powers trembled lest we should be beaten. They still saw our army taking the tricolor cockade. In my dispatch of the 28th of June, number 35, the dispositions of England are faithfully stated. Number 35. London, 28th June, 1822. Monsieur le Vicomte. It has been more difficult for me to tell you what Lord Londonderry thinks relative to Spain than it will be easy for me to penetrate the secret of the instructions given to Sir W. Acourt. However, I will leave nothing undone to procure you the information for which you asked me in your last dispatch, number 18. If I have correctly estimated the policy of the English cabinet and the character of Lord Londonderry, I am persuaded that Sir W. Acourt has taken with him scarcely anything in writing. They will have charged him verbally to observe the parties without mixing in their quarrels. The cabinet of St. James does not love the Cortes, but it despises Ferdinand. It will certainly do nothing for the royalists. Besides, it will be enough that our influence should be exercised in favour of one opinion, for the English influence to support the other. Our reviving prosperity inspires a lively jealousy. It is true that there is here, among the statesmen, a certain vague fear of the revolutionary passions which are agitating Spain. But this fear is silent in the presence of private interests, so much so that if, on the one hand, Great Britain could exclude our wares from the peninsula, and if, on the other, she could recognise the independence of the Spanish colonies, she would easily resign herself to events, and console herself for the misfortunes which might overwhelm the continental monarchies anew. The same principle that prevents England from withdrawing her ambassador from Constantinople makes her send an ambassador to Madrid. She severs herself from the common destinies, and attends only to what she may be able to make out of the revolutions of the empires. I have the honour to be, etc. Reverting to the news from Spain in my dispatch of the 16th of July, number 40, I said to Monsieur de Montmorency, number 40, London, 16th July, 1822. Monsieur le Vicomte. The English newspapers, copying from the French newspapers, this morning give news from Madrid up to and including the 8th. I never expected better from the King of Spain, and I was not surprised. If that unhappy prince is doomed to perish, the manner of the catastrophe is not a matter of indifference to the rest of the world. The dagger would lay low only the monarch. The scaffold might kill the monarchy. Already the judgments on Charles I and Louis says, are a great deal too much. Heaven preserve us from a third judgment, which would appear to establish, through the authority of crimes, a sort of right of peoples and a body of jurisprudence against the kings. We can now expect anything. A declaration of war on the part of the Spanish government is one of the chances which the French government must have foreseen. In any case, we shall soon be obliged to put an end to the sanitary cordon, for once a month of September is past, and the plague not reappearing at Barcelona, it would be a real mockery still to speak of a sanitary cordon. We should therefore quite frankly confess to an army, and give the reason which obliges us to maintain that army. Would not that be equivalent to a declaration of war against the Cortes? On the other hand, shall we break up the sanitary cordon? That act of weakness would compromise the safety of France, disgrace the ministry, and revive the hopes of the revolutionary faction in our midst. I have the honour to be, etc., etc., etc. 
Since the Congress of Vienna and of Aix-la-Chapelle, the princes of Europe had their heads turned with congresses. It was there that one amused oneself and divided a few peoples. Scarcely was the Congress commenced at Leibach and continued at Troppau ended, when they thought of convoking another in Vienna, at Ferrara, or at Verona. Spanish affairs offered the occasion to hasten the moment. Each court had already marked out its ambassador. In London I saw everyone preparing to leave for Verona. As my head was full of Spanish affairs, and as I was dreaming of a plan for the honour of France, I thought I could be of some use to the new Congress by making myself known in a respect which was not thought of. I had written to M. de Montmorency on the 24th of May, but I met with no favour. The minister's long reply is evasive, embarrassed, entangled. A marked aversion to me is ill-disguised under expressions of friendliness. It ends with this paragraph. Since I am in a confidential mood, noble Viscount, I wish to tell you what I would not insert in an official dispatch, but what has been urged upon me by some personal observations, and also by some opinions from persons who know the ground well upon which you are placed. Has it not already occurred to you that one must be mindful with the English ministry of certain effects of jealousy and temper, which it is always ready to conceive at direct marks of favour with the king and of credit in society? You must tell me if you have not happened to observe some traces of this. Through whom had the complaints of my credit with the king and in society, meaning, I suppose, with the Marchioness Cunningham, reach the Vicomte de Montmorency? I do not know. Foreseeing, through this private dispatch, that my game was lost with the Minister of Foreign Affairs, I addressed myself to M. de Villel, then my friend, who did not lean much towards his colleague. In his letter of the 5th of May, 1822, he had first replied with a favourable word. Paris, 5th May, 1822. I thank you, he said, for all that you have done for us in London. The determination of the court there on the subject of the Spanish colonies can have no influence on ours. The position is very different. We must, above all, avoid being prevented by a war with Spain from acting elsewhere as we must, if affairs in the East brought about new political combinations in Europe. We will not allow the French government to be disgraced through a failure to participate in the events which may result from the present situation of the world. Others may intervene with more advantage, none with more courage or loyalty. People are greatly mistaken, I think, both as to the real means of our country and as to the power which the king's government is still able to exercise within the forms which it has laid down for itself. They offer more resources than appears to be believed, and I hope that, when the time comes, we shall know how to prove it. You will help us, my dear friend, in these great circumstances, if they offer themselves. We know it and rely upon it. The honour will be for all, and it is not a question at present of that partition which will be made according to the services rendered. Let us all vie in zeal as to who shall render the most signal services. I do not know, indeed, if this will turn to a congress, but in any case I shall not forget what you have told me. J. de Villel. At this first word of good understanding I brought pressure on the Minister of Finance through Madame la Duchesse de Duras. She had already lent me the support of her friendship against the forgetfulness of the court in 1814. She soon received this note from Monsieur de Villel. All that we were saying is said. All that lies in my heart and in my mind to do for the public good and for my friend is done and shall be done. Be certain of it. I have no need to be preached to nor to be converted, as I said before. 
I act on conviction and sentiment. Receive, madame, the homage of my affectionate respect. My last dispatch, dated 9th August, informed M. de Montmorency that Lord Londonderry would leave for Vienna between the 15th and 20th. The swift and mighty contradiction of mortal projects was given me. I thought that I had to speak to the most Christian king's council of human affairs only, whereas I had to report to it on the affairs of God. London, 12th August, 1822, four o'clock in the afternoon. Dispatch transmitted to Paris by the Calais Telegraph. The Marquis of Londonderry died suddenly this morning, 12th, at nine o'clock in the morning, at his country house at North Cray. Number 49, London, 13th August, 1822. Monsieur le Vicomte, if the weather has put no obstacle in the way of my telegraphic dispatch, and if no accident has arrived to my special messenger, sent off at four o'clock, I hope that you have been the first on the continent to receive the news of the sudden death of Lord Londonderry. This death was extremely tragic. The noble Marquis was in London on Friday. He felt his head a little troubled. He had himself bled between the shoulders, after which he left for North Cray, where the Marchioness of Londonderry had been settled since a month. Fever broke out on Saturday the 10th and Sunday the 11th, but it seemed to subside in the night from Sunday to Monday, and on Monday morning, the 12th, the patient seemed so well that his wife, who was nursing him, thought she might leave him for a moment. Lord Londonderry, whose head was wandering, finding himself alone, got up, went into another room, seized a razor, and, at the first attempt, cut his jugular vein. He fell, bathed in his blood, at the feet of a doctor who was coming to his assistance. They are keeping back this deplorable accident as much as possible, but it has come to the knowledge of the public in a distorted shape, and has given rise to all sorts of rumours. Why should Lord Londonderry have attempted his life? He had neither passions nor misfortunes. He was established more firmly than ever in his place. He was preparing to leave on Thursday next. He was making a pleasure trip of a business journey. He was to be back on the 15th of October for shooting parties arranged beforehand, to which he had invited me. Providence ordained otherwise, and Lord Londonderry has followed the Duc de Richelieu. Here are some details which did not enter into my dispatches. On his return to London, George IV told me that Lord Londonderry had gone to show him the scheme of instructions which he had drawn up for himself, and which he was to follow at the Congress. George IV took up the manuscript the better to weigh its terms, and began to read it aloud. He noticed that Lord Londonderry was not listening to him, and that he was turning his eyes round the ceiling of the closet. "'What's the matter, my lord?' asked the king. "'It's that insufferable John, sir, who is at the door. He will not go away, though I am always telling him.' The king, astonished, folded up the manuscript, and said, "'You are ill, my lord. Go home. Get yourself bled.' Lord Londonderry went out, and went to buy the penknife, with which he cut his throat. On the 15th I continued my reports to Monsieur de Montmorency. Messengers have been sent in every direction, to the watering-places, to the seaside, to the country-houses, to fetch the absent ministers. At the time of the accident, none of them were in London. They are expected to-day or to-morrow. They will hold a council, but they cannot decide anything, for in the last result the King will appoint their new colleague, and the King is in Edinburgh. It is unlikely that His Britannic Majesty will hasten to make a choice in the midst of the celebrations. The death of the Marquis of Londonderry is a serious matter for England. He was not loved, but he was feared. The radicals hated him, but they were afraid of him. Singularly courageous, 
he overawed the opposition, which did not dare to insult him too much in Parliament or in the newspapers. His imperturbable coolness, his profound indifference for men and things, his instinct for despotism, and his secret contempt for constitutional liberties made him a minister well fitted to contend successfully with the tendencies of the century. His defects became good qualities, at a time when exaggeration and democracy threatened the world. I have the honour to be, etc. London, 15th August, 1822. Monsieur le Vicomte, further intelligence confirms what I had the honour to tell you touching the death of the Marquis of Londonderry in my ordinary dispatch of the day before yesterday, number 49. Only the fatal instrument with which the unfortunate minister cut his jugular vein was a penknife and not a razor, as I told you. The coroner's report, which you will read in the newspapers, will inform you fully. This inquest, held on the corpse of the Prime Minister of Great Britain, as though on the body of a murderer, adds something still more terrible to this event. You are doubtless now aware, Monsieur le Vicomte, that Lord Londonderry had shown proofs of mental alienation some days before his suicide, and that the King himself had noticed it. A slight circumstance to which I had paid no attention, but which returned to my memory after the catastrophe, deserves to be told. I had gone to see the Marquis of Londonderry some twelve or fifteen days ago. Contrary to his custom and to the custom of the country, he received me familiarly in his dressing-room. He was about to shave himself, and laughing a sardonic laugh, he spoke to me in praise of the English razors. I complimented him on the approaching closing of the session. Yes, said he, either that must come to an end, or I must. I have the honour to be, etc. All that the English radicals and the French liberals have told concerning the death of Lord Londonderry, namely that he killed himself through political despair, feeling that the principles opposed to his own were going to triumph, is a pure fable invented by the imagination of some, the party spirit and silliness of others. Lord Londonderry was not the man to repent of having sinned against humanity, for which he cared very little, nor against the enlightenment of the age, for which he had a profound contempt. Madness had come into the Castlereagh family through the women. It was decided that the Duke of Wellington, accompanied by Lord Clanwilliam, should take Lord Londonderry's place at the Congress. The official instructions were reduced to this, to forget Italy entirely, not to mix at all in the affairs of Spain, to negotiate where those of the East were concerned by maintaining peace without increasing the influence of Russia. The chances continued in favour of Mr. Canning, and the business of the Foreign Office was entrusted ad interim to Lord Bathurst, the Colonial Secretary. I attended Lord Londonderry's funeral at Westminster on the 20th of August. The Duke of Wellington appeared moved. Lord Liverpool was obliged to cover his face with his hat, to hide his tears. One heard a few cries of insult and joy outside, as the body entered the Abbey. Were Colbert and Louis Quatorze more respected? The living can teach nothing to the dead. The dead, on the contrary, instruct the living. End of Book 9, Part 1